and we'll have after this interview. Yo, yo, yo. Welcome to Made to Think with your host, Ninjam. As always, I keep trying to bring the best guest I could possibly get. And I, uh, I'm absolutely flabbergasted with this next guest. I've been following this gentleman my entire life. My DJ career started with names on flyers with such gentlemen. It's basically royalty. And I don't want to talk too much because he's very busy. It's the one and only Danny Ramplin. Holy shit. Can you believe it? Good Uh, afternoon, Adam. Royalty. Oh, I haven't heard that one before. (laughs) Come on. You're absolute royalty. Now, there's lots of it we're going to get into here, but please introduce yourself for those that don't know who you are, which can't believe nobody knows who Um, you are. DJ, producer, events, uh, promoter, um, scene um, pioneer, of the acid house scene and uh, stroke rave movement, movement back in the eighties. Yeah, so um, music man, music is my life. So here I am, and I, and entrepreneur. Basically, the founder, one of the founders of the rave club scene in England. And I'm I'm forty five. I I've experienced this whole movement, and there was five names on flyers back then that I really give a shit about, and this guy was one of them. So this is mental for me. Um, please tell us you're um you're in your sixties now. What was it like growing up in London in the sixties? I didn't grow up in the sixties. I was a small child in the sixties, so I'm not I'm not the 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 northern side of sixties. I was born in the sixties. <laughs> I grew up in the nineteen seventies. What was London like? Exciting. Yeah. You know, vibrant fashion, music cultures, you know, youth culture, hippies, um, disco, um, you know, uh, punk, mods. That was the 1970s. Um, an exciting time um, as a kid. Um, be, uh, being around all of that um, creativity and um, London was a very different place back then um, to what it is now. But, um, yeah, I'm really glad that I grew up in the 1970s. I think it was, you know, a, an amazing decade, even though that I was still, you know, in my uh, youth, uh, early youth. Um, um, yeah, a great time to uh, for music and uh, fashion, art, everything combined. Um, and style, uh, 1970s style is strong influences uh, that we see today is it hasn't gone away the the uh the essence of the 1970s pop music everything what were the first musical influences that you probably got from your parents do you remember anything on the radio as you were growing up yeah i used to listen to the radio because my mother had the radio on um all of the time during the day um in the kitchen so i used yeah. to spend quite bit of time in the kitchen making her tea and make her breakfast, you know, from a young age. Um, it was very helpful around the house. So I was fascinated by um, the sound being um, transmitted um, across the airways through a small radio on the kitchen work counter, uh, work service. And um, that was my introduction to radio and music. I was fascinated and become obsessed with radio, how someone was talking far away and playing music at the same time. And then that was um, um, coming out of this small um, transistor radio on, you know, in the kitchen. So um, Tamla Motown, pop music of the time, 1970s music. Yeah. Late sixties music as well. Very, very young age. Um, Yeah. But uh, Tamla Motown is certainly a music form that, 
really has uh, influenced me greatly. Did you, did you have a favourite track as a kid? Oh God, there's so many of them, but um, oh God, so many. That's had to pinpoint one. But in terms of a Tamla Motown track, Stone Love by the Supremes, uh, that was my uh, favourite 1970s um, Tamla Motown track. Supremes are wonderful. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's a great song. Great song. And it's all connected to house music, 4-4 four, four beats. You know, um, it's all interlinked. It's all the, uh, in the sequence of events, and it's soul music. Um, I liked all the pop stars of the day, David Bowie, um, dare I say it, Gary Glitter and the Glitter Band, who were kind of a glam rock band, the Sweet. I liked all those glam rock bands, you know, that were around at that time um, as a as a kid. So you know, as a kid, you're not a musical snob. So and that the whole glam rock sound along alongside um, heavy metal, which I wasn't really into, and progressive rock, which is more of a kind of like um, developed musical taste. Um, you know, kind of young kid, progressive rock went right over my head, Led Zeppelin and everything. But I, you know, I like that music now, but um, it was a bit too kind of out there, and um, my musical uh, taste hadn't um developed and matured uh at the, in those formative years. But um, yeah, it's just glam rock. Um, you know, Tamla Motown, soul music, and um, that was that really shaped my musical taste as a kid. How did you access music in the early days aside from radio? Was there any other outlet or just radio? Yeah, there was a, a record shop around the corner on um, um, on the local high street. So um, you just go in there and spend um, my record tokens that I get given as gifts at Christmas and birthdays and my uh, paper round money and, um, and my cleaning the house chores money and... You know, I do anything. Well, not anything. I work, had a strong work ethic from a um a, a young age. So, um, you know, I save up pocket money and uh, and buy music. Music uh, was my main um um spend, should I say? Yeah, what I'd spend my money on. So the record shop on the corner. You know, these were these were the days in London and uh, you know not just London around. Um, in the UK where you'd have corner shops and you'd have a row of shops and there'd be, you know, all different types of shops. And we were very fortunate to have a record shop on the corner. And I was always looking in the window um, before I actually went in there and bought music, you know, obsessed with like the covers in the window. So, yeah, I'd spend time in the record shops. So how did you play these records? What did you have at home to play them? Um, on a family gramophone initially. Wow, one you had those, a gramophone. Well, I didn't. My my grandmother did. Um, one of those big cabinet, uh, walnut cabinet, uh, which are antiques now, and they're uh, they're sought after and valuable. So, yeah, um, lots lots of homes had those cabinet uh, record players. There'd be a record player on the right and some um, disc space on the left, and some of them had, a, I believe, a radio in. But um, yeah, so that was. Uh, where I initially started playing music and at family parties um, in the 1970s. And, um, yeah, that was my uh, introduction to DJing as well. So I was obsessed with um, buying records and playing music. And then um, sometime after that, I was um, given a, um, a, a, a gift um, of a small binatone uh, one-deck record player that... Um, I used to open the window up in my bedroom and I'd play my 
my records at full blare so people could hear when they were walking past in the street. So that was the early days of DJ. <laughs> That's amazing. Yeah, I had the same similar uh, experience DJing for the uh, when the kids came into assembly at school. They hired like, you know, the, the, the good boys, but I was a rebel. I'd lock the door and stop playing the hymns and play Doctor Who instead. <laughs> um, what, what were the... What were the original radio stations back then? Can you remember the DJ? Was the uh, DJs? Oh, radio, radio. My mother used to listen to Radio One, um, and and Radio Luxembourg, Radio Caroline. So those were the stations, the main stations that I used to listen to. That's interesting because um, we'll get to Wayne Ant in a minute, but he mentioned this Radio Luxembourg as well. And um, what were your interests at school, if any? <laughs> Can I just add to that? Um, yeah. yeah, I'm radio, yeah, um, radio one on on the radio um, at home. I knew from a very young age that I would love to be one of those DJs um, yeah. on Radio One at a very young age, maybe kind of nine, ten years old, wow. and and that happened. I, yeah. I became a DJ for seven years on BBC Radio One. I, I climbed from pirate radio onto BBC Radio One. And stayed there with a primetime Saturday night show, the Love Groove Dance Party, for seven years, which was um, on par with Pete Tong's um, uh, radio show. But yeah, um, it was an early obsession with radio, and that that has been my calling. I love radio. I um, I'm on radio, uh, a radio station called Force Radio Dot Live uh, every Saturday night, and uh, it, it's. Uh, international um internet based uh and that's uh on between seven and nine pm uk time so it's all about uplifting house raising the frequency uh through music um as we did on the love groove dance party for a number of years so uh, i've been with force radio dot live for um three uh just under th three years i believe two and a half years so, yeah, really enjoying the show and uh, the station is expanding. We're listened to in over 180 countries. So it's good to be back on the radio. That's uh, where I, uh, I I belong and I, yeah, I, I love presenting radio shows. So this idea of you opening your window and playing music, um, yeah. was there something going on at school? Were you, were you not very sociable or something? Or you had a voice that you couldn't express unless you had music? What, what was the deal with that? Why were you so adamant, like, i got to be on the radio? Well, I, think it was, I think it was a calling. We're all given a gift in life. Exactly. And it's how we utilise that gift. And that was my gift. And playing music is my gift to the world through my craft. But yes. I recognise that at a very, very young age. And that is my my dharma, my life path. Um, you know, whether you're a great musician or a great photographer or a great footballer, whatever it may be, we've all got a gift in life. And it's how we harness that gift and, and follow um, our passion and what really drives us. Um, and, you know, so many people give up on their passion along the way. Mm. Um, uh, fortunately, you know, I've... I've I, you know, I've had a a, a, a lot of um, um, good things. Well, sorry, sorry. Fortunately, I have followed my passion, passion, and it's led to a career that has taken me all over the world, and continues to. So I'm very blessed and I'm very grateful. And I would um, suggest that you know, whatever you're passionate about, follow that passion and don't give up. Don't yeah. give up. You know, it's you know, life isn't easy, 
And uh, you're always going to have obstacles in your path, whatever level of, or you're at within the given field of whatever that passion is, there's always going to be obstacles, even when you're at the top of that game. Always. So you, but, you had that, you had that initial taste of what yeah. you call the law, the law of attraction and you followed it. Would, would you consider yeah. yourself to be a bit of a rebel back in your school days? I mean, you know, yeah. did you start, did you, did you go like against school. the, uh, you know, like, just the base? Yeah. I didn't like school. Um, I, I wasn't designed. Um, I, I wasn't designed to fit into the school system and be indoctrinated with the uh, you know propaganda that is taught 100%. in school. It's indoctrination, in my opinion, in 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 the state school system. Um, there is some very good um, uh, um, home schools and um, independent schools, uh, and that are flourishing in recent years and. Um, uh, Steiner is uh, schools are the uh, the benchmark and set that benchmark, but um, state school was not a very pleasant experience. Um, and, and yeah, rebel. Yeah, I guess I was a rebel. I liked art at school. I liked history. Um, I liked English, um, and the rest of it <laughs> wasn't worth going there for. Struggled with maths at times, but I did in I enjoyed maths. Um, but uh, yeah, it got a bit too complicated, and I lost my attention. You know, my attention so, goes where my energy flows, and if I'm into something, I'll pay attention. If I if I'm not into it, what's the point of wasting time? And it's like anything in life. If you're not into it, don't waste your time focusing energy on that. Focus your energy on what really drives you and what yeah. you're passionate about and what you excel at. You know, we're not good at everything in life. We're really not. So what were you doing after school? Did you finish school at 16? You completed the, the normal indoctrination and then you just went your own way? Yeah. Couldn't wait to get out to work. And that's what I did. Get out to work and, and make money, earn money. Um, university, um, uh, I, I didn't want to stay on in education. I mean, I have... Uh, in, in my more recent years, over the last couple of decades, I have invested my time and, um, and money into personal development. And, uh, you know, it's a quest for learning that I have. And maybe that's because I didn't go to university after school or college. Um, 100%. So, yeah. So uh, I, I think, you know, you're never too old to learn. And life is a is a constant process of, of learning. So, yeah, I just left and I wanted to work in a record company, wrote to lots of record companies and record shops, and there was no way in. So just took, like, um, you know, kind of working construction, really, and um, that pa that paid my way for fashion and music and disposable income, you know, and as a you know, teenager, 20-something, you know, you just want to go out and spend your money and have a good time, and that's... <laughs> so That's I used what we to do when we're young, you know. I... Oh, let's get a mortgage, shall we? At twenty years old, you know, I admire someone, you know, some people who want to go down that path, and good on them. Uh, yeah, they build property empires, but you know, I don't regret any of it. I, know, I, 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 you know, I have had a, a, an incredible time in my in my formative years in uh, leaving school and fashion and music and art and uh, and, and different scenes. So yeah, yeah. I 100% I agree. My father also told me, like, you know, people who go to university, they're just lazy bums. So I feel like I also didn't get indoctrinated and I became more of the creative soul. Um, when was your first clubbing experience and who were the DJs? My first clubbing experience was at the Cat's Whiskers in uh, Streatham, a high road. 
um, got in there uh, about, I think it was either 14 or 15, managed to get in there. It was quite strict. It was over 18s on a Sunday. I think I was probably 15, uh, 15, maybe 16. Um, and the, uh, the Crystal Palace Hotel, where this was like, you know, kind of in the, in the 70s and disco music was soundtrack. So, you know, that's that was about the advent of uh, American import shrink wrapped 99 right. pence, which was nice. a lot of money then. American imports, which I became obsessed and fascinated with. And that's where the 12 inch extended remix or edit came from. And that was great. It was, you know, having a 12 inch shrink wrapped, you know, the plastic on the cover from America was an amazing, um, thrilling uh, uh, addition to one's music collection, all of those 12 inch records. So you had a bunch of seven inches for for what the first many, part? Yeah, many years, it was all yeah. seven inch. An album, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Now, how did you meet the likes of Paul Oakenfold and Nicky Holloway? I mean, how? <laughs> uh, in London before house music, because I was an aspiring DJ. I met Nicky in Ibiza in the early 80s um, and became friends with him. And then I worked alongside Nicky. I became his you know, kind of uh, assistant in, in in promotion and um, setting up his club nights and parties. And um, just, ha you know, we became friends. So I learned a great deal from Nicky Holloway, um, even though even though he got a bit uptight about it back then when, you know, began machine, but he's all right now. But, um, you know, <laughs> taught me a lot. So, you know, and, and this is all before the days of the secrets where we manifest things. You know, this is a natural ability that we all have, you know. We visualise, we manifest, we set goals. That's what I want to do. You know, that's what I'm driven to do. So, and Paul, I met through... Um, Nicky and Paul was a um, record promotion guy at the time. Um, he worked at a, a record like um, a company, a promo company called Rush Release, I believe. He worked with Profile Records um, and they brought the whole Def Jam tour into um, the UK um, in Run DMC, um, Public Enemy. Uh, who's the other? Who's the other ones? Um, all those Def Jam artists. So Paul was involved with all that, and um, yeah, and he used to give me records. You know, I was on, I got, I got a slot on Kiss in the inception of its pirate days uh, through Nicky because Nicky knew Gordon Mac, and he said, "Oh, my mate Danny, um, he really wants to be on the radio." Um, had no radio experience, and I and I got a slot on there late night because Gordon Mac, who um, I'm forever grateful for. He recognised my top three that I sent out to one of his shows when he was on another pirate station. And, um, yeah, he gave me a slot late night, and that's where my radio career began. So just before that, you you know, the legendary four godfathers of dance music, you all went to IB for in 1987. Um, you, you saw Amnesia, Alfredo, and the whole Blairit beat sound that you'd never really heard. And I'm guessing MDMA was a new thing. I, I'm not sure. I'm just, what was that first encounter like when you went there in 1987 to Ibiza? Well, incredible. Um, we had been in Ibiza before. Ah. Um said um stepping into amnesia when it was an open air club and very rustic and base uh, quite basic in fact um with a cosmopolitan um crowd of people 
um, and the party uh, additions. Um, yeah, a, a life changing experience, and wow. um, um, the music and and the high, um, it, it changed a generation and generations, shall we say. Um, but that experience there, we were all greatly influenced and inspired by the experience and the music of DJ Alfredo. And Alfredo, uh, to me, was like the American DJs with Larry Levan at the Paradise yeah. Garage. So right. I've always said this. Um, Alfredo was our Larry Levan in Europe um, and um, played this wonderful mix of music as Larry Levan was doing at the Paradise Garage. You know, he just didn't play disco, played all forms of music. But we uh, coined it the Balearic Beats because it was an openness towards um, a certain a style, not all styles, but um, there's something about music when it's played in Ibiza. Um, yeah. Certain... certain not everything, but just certain tracks. You know, there's something that's connected with the um, the spirit of a beta, and that that became the Balearic uh, sound, which encompassed everything from reggae to indie rock, pop, um, um, Latin sounds, uh, all ma all manner of all different styles of music, really. But music <laughs> that was fitting to the vibe in Amnesia. Yes. It, wasn't just like I'll play some random pop record. It was, you know, he he Alfredo selected certain songs that were really connected to the audience on the dance floor in the open air with the sun coming up in the Mediterranean. Yeah, yeah. It, um, who 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 is responsible for that that term then? Balearic beats. Did anybody coin that, or was that already there? Uh, us lot. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So then, we weren't basically, already there. No. You had you had four guys that are all different like trades and different skills, and you all come back to England. And then what happened next at Shoom? Massive, well, the legendary Shoom. But well, we came back and, and and created our own respected clubs. I I hadn't um, I had I had dreamed of starting a, a my own club where I'd have a a crowd that reciprocates the music and loves the music that I'm playing and um that's what happened created shoom and uh, 300 people and it grew from strength to strength over within a few weeks it went from 100 people to a couple of thousand people outside trying to get in so wow. it was a whole revolution in music and um fashion and youth culture and um Paul began with Ziggy's in Streatham and then Future in Heaven and then Spectrum and Land of Oz and Nikki special branch, which was more of the soul kind of vibe and rare groove, and then moved to the trip where that was about house music. Johnny was an A and R man and a DJ, so Johnny yeah. didn't he didn't have a desire to create a club, but I you know I I got my um, my opportunity then and a platform to become a professional DJ, and host my own club um, nights with my wife, Jenny, at the time. Wow. How can you describe the energy and the vibes in the early days then? Like, what was it Ele like? Electric hedonism, free state of hedonism. And I I've said this on another interview. Uh, no VIP uh, BS. Everybody yeah. was a VIP. And in my opinion, everyone still is a, a VIP. Um, you know, it's about the music and it's about uh, unity 
and togetherness. And music unites us, music heals us, music brings us together. And music and what, transcends barriers and division. What time was this club open till? Did you have to, set, uh, you know, cut it out or you have an after party? What was the crack? Shoon was in a, in a basement gym. So in the during the week, it was a gymnasium. So we clear clear everything to one side, and then it became a uh, like a where warehouse basement party. Strobe smoke um, started at half about eleven, half eleven, and then at five o'clock the lights would come up, and that was the end of the night. So back then, places didn't have licenses till five a.m. It wasn't a, London was not a twenty-four hour city. So um, yeah, um, we 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 had a five a.m. Um, close time, which was great. And everyone just had the most amazing experience. And it was, for many, it was like going to uh, to church every every week. Yeah, the, <laughs> church of, the church of Acid House. Now, talking about Acid House, one of my first guests on this podcast was Wayne Anthony, because I absolutely oh, yeah. love Class of 88. Um, I've just spoke to him. He wants to give you a shout out. Much love to you. Um, he, he he told me all about that. That he said there was nowhere for people to go afterwards. Like people just wandering around the street. But he just told me that you're the guy responsible for putting the acid house on the smiley face thing. Is that right? Is that a real fact? Well, that's right. Yeah, because um, um, I adopted the um smiley um face symbol for Shoe, which then wow. later became uh later became uh the symbolism of the rave scene and was bastardized by the rave scene um uh you smilers with bullets uh, holes in their heads and blood all over their faces which didn't represent the joy the, the smiley is a really kind of innocent symbol of joy and happiness and that's what it represented and that's why i adopted that as uh the uh uh the uh logo for shoom the smiley uh, that's look incredible now, where, now, where is, where is the... we've got about where, 50 yeah. of them both so but all true. of this born out of that uh, out of the acid house movement but who, who's who, who's the designer of that the acid face uh what's his name oh the american guy um not timothy leary no 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 what's his name again um anyway he designed it and another company took it off of him so the original designer was ripped off basically i'm trying wow. to recall the name but anyway um yeah so, so 1970s game, the smiley face, patches on denim jackets, badges. Yeah. I was, you know, I was, um, uh, you know, I was really drawn towards the smiley as a kid, you know, because it just represents happiness and joy and fun. Wow. What Shoom was about. Shoom and the whole Acid's House scene was about joy, fun, you know, kind of. And here's me thinking this whole time it was Forrest Gump. <laughs> um, so then, then you ho you hosted a <laughs> you hosted a pirate radio station called Kiss. Um, now, please, for, there's a lot of listeners in Vietnam. They don't understand what pirate radio is. I mean, right. we're doing we're doing podcasting now, which is, is similar to that in a way, but it's a lot more um, you know exposure. But what is a pirate radio station? What was Kiss? Right, a pirate radio station was a radio station that broadcast on the FM radio band. Um, there were only a certain amount of radio licenses allocated to certain commercial stations. So in between those commercial stations on the radio band, there'd be free bandwidth, open bandwidth. So pirate radio was um, a, a group of pirates like ourselves, music lovers, <laughs> that our music... Um, uh, 
uh, black music and um, uh, underground music was not being played on mainstream radio. So there was a huge opening for pirate radio. And that's pirate radio. Most of the top DJs that you see today, um, the the first generation wave of top DJs, they came through pirate radio. Um, you know, um, so many people that are household names today. Um, and then pirate stations, as I said, I was with Kiss from the beginning. Uh, it was an exciting time for radio, really exciting because, yeah, it was. Um, uh, it, we provided we provided the soundtrack um, um, to music lovers and um, Kiss at that time was, you know, one of the um, taglines was the sound of young London. And that's what it was about. You know, who was running? Who was running this kiss then? How was it set up? What was the equipment? Was it in a house or was it in a studio? Yeah, it was. It was in people's flats and um, the trade. Ah, you moved. You moved yeah, it around. It, it would always be moving because um, the Department of Trade and Industry would always be chasing after to try and take the transmitters down, which wow. were in Greenwich and Crystal Palace, high points on hills in um, in London, uh, so that the um, transmitters would transmit across London. So it was a cat and mouse game and it was very exciting. It was naughty. Um, and that was all part of the thrill. And that's what you know, it attracted so many listeners to Pirate Radio because we we got our music fixed there. You know, we, we'd hear the latest imports and music that wasn't released. And exciting, you know, and Pirate Radio is still very, very prominent in UK, UK cities um, today. So why why wasn't the mainstream radio stations playing that at the time? Why did why was the need of pirate radio? Uh, because they didn't think there was an audience for that, and it was a very different um, uh, uh, period of history. They 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 did you know uh, DJs weren't respected the way they are now back then. Mm -hmm. Interesting. DJs were someone who turned up at a wedding or something, you know, or like the office party. Or was like there a local local disco with a shiny suit on and a microphone but there was a whole burgeoning underground scene and that's where pirate radio filled that that it, it fueled the scene you know it, it, without pirate radio all the different things combined interlinked pirate radio underpinned the whole acid house scene amazing it, it gave music a platform to a wider audience was there any way to for you to look at how many people were listening to that show at the time or not at all? No idea. It's not like today, you know, you can, you, you with the digital age, you know, yeah. there's, you, you can uh, have the uh, data on, you know, how many people are listening, where they're listening from. Um, and, you know, that's great, but it wasn't, it wasn't so that uh, uh, as advanced as what it is today, but, you know, it was demonstrated by, um, the listenership by the um, the people that were gravitated towards those stations and the parties that were held through the radio stations and it became a scene. Yeah, you know, the radio so, was intended to the how whole. Did you, scene. Huh? How did you? How did you guys um, like protect? I, I guess you were advertising your illegal parties or whatever on the pirate radio station, but how did you protect all these government people listening in and finding out where you were going to do the party? People kept on the move, so they get tip offs, and uh, you know, ah. um, transmitters were you know kind of um, guarded, and you know people would be on the lookout, and um, yeah, just um, move from place to place. As I said, it was a cat and mouse, cat and mouse scenario. Um, Mate, 
Unbelievable that. Um, how really, did you meet? How did you really, meet Judge? How did you really meet Judge? Exciting. How did you meet Judge Jules? Because he's through, through he's another FM one. Radio. Right. Yes, so I met, met Jules through Kiss FM Radio. Jules was on Kiss from the beginning as well. And Jules used to host parties with Norman Jay, um, Shake and Finger Pop, which were mansion parties. And Jules was a, a trainee lawyer. So um, the police oh, wow. would turn up and Jules would um, give them the legal spill and the police would go away. So um, Jules knew how to handle the police. And, um, and Norman was the party host, Norman Jay. So Norman that's, why, Jay... that's why his name's Judge Jules. Well, <laughs> I didn't exactly. know that. Yeah, and Jules is back in um, uh, the uh, law as a profession now. He's a leading lawyer in a uh, London law practice. So, um, yeah, he he was uh, a, a studying lawyer um, at that time, and uh, yeah, he's uh, uh, with Norm, Norman Jay. He was very he's very good friends with Norman. Um, that kept Norman's parties going, the Shake a Finger Pop and um, parties and Good Times parties. They were really. Um, cool parties to go to back then before house music and the whole rare groove scene. That's incredible. I had no idea for all the listeners who, who know you that no, I'm pretty sure all my friends didn't know judge was a real judge. <laughs> That's brilliant. Um, then what it's, happened in 1990? What, what, what happened in 1991 with DJ magazine? Um, what happened in 1990? You tell me. <laughs> well, um, according to, I don't know the facts. You were the first ever DJ to be voted the top one DJ of the charts at the time. Is that correct? The that's first correct. ever. Yes. This that's is yeah. Danny. That's an incredible achievement. I mean, I don't give a shit about the top 100 anymore. They're all shite. But to be the first of the first, I think yes, you deserve that. Well done. Um, and Thank you, yeah, that was how 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 important was having this DJ magazine around? Because for me, it was epic. Sorry, how what? How how important was it having a DJ magazine as well as you? You know, you've got your pirate radio, but you've got DJ magazine as well. For, for us, DJ Mag was like the Bible. We used to go. We used to look at it every Thursday, and we choose where we were going on. We go see Danny Danny Ramblin on Friday. It was our guide. It was our Bible. For you, how 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 much of a difference did did it make to your DJ career having the DJ magazine around? Well, James Hamilton was one of the early writers for DJ magazine, who was a great writer and knew his music. So, um, yeah, DJ magazine was very important as a DJ um, in um, uh, those formative years of DJing, and um, it's still widely read. It's an you know an important um, 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 publication. That supports the, the our wonderful music scene. Yeah, I've been on the cover for a few years, but it's about time I'm back on the cover. So, <laughs> <laughs> how did how did it it's change? Still hope. How, how uh, did that change your life? Being voted the first ever DJ, like top DJ of the world. I found it a bit strange. I went and played in Australia, and it was all over the promo, and I was like, mm. <laughs> I, I just found it a bit odd. <laughs> I really did. You, I was, how do you, I was how do you... sitting there on a throne with a crown on my head. Let's just put it that way. I thought, well, yeah, this is this is flattering. This is a uh, a nice achievement. But I, you know, I didn't let it go to my head. Mm. I was just a bit taken back by it, quite frankly. When, but it wasn't, you know, when that began, it wasn't like it is now. You know, right, right, yeah, very, very different. And DJ Magazine back then didn't have the circulation 
Well, it was on the way there, but it didn't have the circulation that it has had through the, um, you know, kind of the late, uh, late, mid, late nineties into the, you know, the present. Um, but I, I'm, I'm guessing that was organic because I remember when Beatport came out and Deadmau was like top of the charts, and, and he was part of the whole spot. Um, he was part of that whole movement, so it was like he was buying his own, his own fame. I think with you, it's right. more organic. Um. You started producing and formed a band. Tell us about yeah. that. Well, I did a band, an electronic um, millionaire, millionaire hippies. We're with Deconstruction Music uh, label. And um, unfortunately, Kylie, Kylie Minogue came along and um, hoovered up all the resources of um, uh, Deconstruction and things were changing at BMG Music. Yeah. And unfortunately, BMG went under. Um, Deconstruction went under. And Sasha was on that label. There was, you know, a lot, uh, Dave Seaman, a lot of uh, great artists. But um, I do believe that Kylie Minogue came along with her album and they, God knows how much they paid Kylie Minogue to have this album. And all these dance producers um, did uh, tracks with Kylie on this album. All right, an okay album, but it didn't set the pop music world ablaze, that uh, you know, kind of in comparison to PWL. And I do believe that may have been one of the reasons why um, the wonderful um, Deconstruction Music label went under. And, uh, yeah, we all went with it, unfortunately. And, yeah. Interesting. That's so nothing, it... against, nothing against Kylie Minogue, my ad. You know, she's a great pop artist. Uh, obviously, um... she paid a shed load. Oh, <laughs> and she's that was she, the label. There's, there's been a couple of good house remixes that I've played in the past. Oh, yeah. Um yeah. In 1994, a certain radio show porched you. And this is where it gets a bit interesting now. So you porch from a pirate radio station, Kiss, and then you go work for who? No, I wasn't poached from pirate station. Kiss was a legal station then. Kiss was became a commercial uh, London radio station. It, it, this was, bit, and again, this was really on the cusp of the internet in 94. Right. So KISS was mainly London home counties. It wasn't national like it is now and right. global. Um, and, um, yeah, Radio 1 was changing. So I was approached by Jeff Young and uh, Pete Tong. And uh, wow. they, they um, well, they did, they did poach us from KISS. They did. And um, I have to say, towards the end of my time at Radio 1, I wasn't treated very fairly. And, um, you know, um, that's the BBC right, uh, uh, radio corporate structure. However, um, back then, uh, they um, they poached, and that is the correct term, actually. Um, myself, Tim Westwood, Judge Jules, Trevor Nelson um, from KISS Radio, Giles Peterson sometime yep. later, One from KISS, um, which was quite... Quite upsetting to Gordon Mack in, I think, I believe it, you know, because, it, you know, it's like having a football team and all your star players get poached by like another team. <laughs> and then you've got like, uh, you know, five or six like star players that have left, you know, this great club and gone to another um, uh, club. And that's what happened. Um, my, my, my wife manager at the time said, you've got to take this opportunity. It's, you know, it's climbing the radio tree ladder you know, you'll be broadcasting on a national station and have a wider, wider audience and voice for the music. And yeah, and that's what happened. 
interesting. How did your music style evolve then over the, the time period of going into BBC radio? How did my musical style um, evolve? evolve? Yeah. Because I always remember you, you played quite a long, a big range of different tracks, but how would you say it evolved on the radio compared to when you started out DJing? Did you become more commercial or stuck to your guns? No, I didn't become more commercial on Radio 1, even though people had said, oh, oh that's it, he's sold out, he's on BBC Radio 1. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> like, quite, quite ridiculous. I wasn't doing a breakfast show and getting paid two million quid a year. Um, so how is that a sellout, P pushing dance music to a wider audience, which also benefited the artists, the record labels, the producers? It was a boom. It was a boom time in the nineties for music sales and on the associated uh, profession around um, music production. And all of those, all of our shows, when they went national, it really, it really helped underpin the compilation. Um, um, DJ um, market and the sales of music um, in that nineties period. It was a golden golden um, decade of music sales and uh, clubbing. But the first track I played on Radio One was "I Get Lifted" by Barbara Tucker. Wow, I remember it clearly. Huge bloody radio studio. It's like my gosh. So I've gone from this nice intimate station speaking to my friend, my, my 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 listeners in London or their listeners, it felt like a family. And then it was national. So it was this big studio with this archaic desk. There wasn't any kind of like, you know, kind of um, uh, Kiss was more driven towards dance music. Radio 1 was pop music. So they hadn't quite caught up. And it took us some time to adapt the studios there. And through our input, we adapted the studios, which became more modernised and more suitable to dark, uh, to electronic music. So, yeah, that, that was the first track I played. Yeah. Was that was that Positiva? No? Uh, Strictly Rhythm. In, Strictly um, Rhythm, yes. And, and um, Positiva, Positiva I, song. I was friends with, you remember Tim Lennox from, from Manchester? Yeah, yeah he yeah, was a good friend of mine. I, I used to go to him in uh, in Kissing Leeds to, you know, just hang out. He, he, he's a big fan of, big fan of his. Now, what was the highlight of your career at that time? Because you like, we, me and my mates, we used to listen to you, Pete Tong, Judge yeah. Jules. Every time we used to go to a club down the motorway, one of you guys would be on the fucking radio. Every single song you played became massive hit. Um, at that time there, you're, you're pumping, man. What was the highlight of your career, would you say? Well, I think the highlight of my career around that time was joining Radio One. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I, I yeah, uh, that was a big uh, uh, step uh, forward within radio, with, within my own career of radio. So joining the station that I'd listened to as a kid and then becoming uh, a radio DJ on BBC Radio One was a was a massive achievement at that time. And I, yeah, I, 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 I felt very honoured by that and um, excited. And it took me a while to settle into Radio One. Um, but yeah, it'd gone from like broadcasting to London to the whole of the country, and then beyond that, all around the world. So yeah, that was a, a major achievement at that uh, point in the mid nineties. So just going back to what you were saying when you were listening to radio when you was a kid, but you said BBC One it was B uh, when you say Radio One was still BBC Radio. One, radio. Yeah. yeah, it's the same. Yeah. It was the same. Yeah, same wow, yeah. it, that's incredible. So the law of attraction now. What was your favourite crowd and venue or or country to DJ? 
can't remember. <laughs> I've seen many of them. Um, uh, now, no, you, no, you, you played at the Ass- Hold on, all jokes. I'm joking. Adam, I'm joking. Favourite places to play, always on home shore. You know, yeah. I love playing in the UK. Um, um, South America, Argentina. Uh, I, I played in um, Japan a few times. I love Japan. I haven't played there for many years. I'd love, I'd love to go back and play in Japan again. Um, uh, I first played in Asia in Thailand at a place on Hadrin in um, Koh Phangan. Um, a guy called Johnny Lee, who is the um, charity director of the Last Night DJ Save My Life charity. Right. He had a bar on Hadrin called the Vinyl Cafe. So um, I'd met Johnny in Ibiza, and that was the first place I played, um, I think. If I'm, yeah, I think that was my first trip to Thailand in the mid-90s. I I wanted to go there for years, and I, and I played at the Vinyl Cafe, and it was amazing. So, um, But on the on the actual circuit, um, you know, Holland, um, but particularly South America, Argentina and Uruguay and, um, yeah, Hong Kong, Australia. Yeah. How, how are I, these, I, yeah. Were these, were these, did you feel that these places were, were really behind what you'd experienced in, uh, in Ibiza in the early days or were they, were they channeling their own sort of vibes that was, was, you know, different? No, not not at all. Um, I think you know, kind of the '90s with the output of radio and the scene was really uh, became the super club scene. So you know, we were exporting um, the the sound and the DJ culture worldwide, and all all of us, the key DJs, were playing across the world. Um, and um, uh, yeah, I, uh, when I got into Radio One, you know, one of the other. Th- I, I will say this: the downside of playing on Radio One, they restricted me from. Uh, I didn't. I didn't break America because of the restrictions through BBC Radio One and the contract that uh, I'd he- I, I held with um, the production company wouldn't allow me to pre-record shows. So therefore, I couldn't go and play in the states as much as I wanted to. And at that time, there was a golden opportunity to uh, tour the US um, regular. So. Yeah, that was that was quite restrictive in that aspect. But I played the states a number of times, um, and uh, yeah, I continued to play there occasionally. But yeah, certainly uh, again a territory that I I I will go back and and play more dates in the US, and that's that's um, something that I uh, am uh, working on. And um, yeah, there's. Uh, that that's interesting because um, I played with Pete Tongit Blanchies over here, and he was yeah. pre-recording. He could he could record his radio show from anywhere. Um, so what you're saying there is that you couldn't do any recording unless you're in England for BBC. Yeah, not at that time, but for, oh but wow, that's, that's fucked all, up. All yeah, this was before podcasting, and this was before like you know taking a podcast mic on the road, and right. you know kind of audacity uh, uh programs and you know being able to record a radio show you know i take oh. i take my my mic with me and sometimes when i i don't have time to to record that show at home i will then you know uh if i'm on the road i'll record the show on the road i see um, I did my my radio show from abita and i was sitting on the terrace in my hotel room and that's the the, the the wonders of the technology we have now and the software and everything else at that time it was the early days so 
we were stuck to studio broadcasting and um you know you could pre-record one or two shows but um I think if I remember right, they would not let me record two shows, two consecutive weeks. But you needed two weeks to tour America to go out and do two two consecutive weekends. So there was a clause in the contract. So anyway, it's all changed now. It's you know. Um, so at, at that time, you you was you was um, you was paid to do a show every week, no days, no weeks off. No, seldom had a week off. Fucking no, hell. No. No, um, I, I I was unwell on two occasions, but I, no, I was there uh, every week. I'd program the show up on Friday and Saturday in the afternoon, and sometimes be working DJing on Friday night. Come home early hours, be straight up into the music cellar, programming up the the music bed to then go into the studio, mix that live, and talk over the top while I was mixing. So that's how I would produce the shows at Radio One. So it was all done live. It was very, think, very few pre-records. I, I think something I want to bring up here for the for the younger generation is that I, I used to work for Unique Records and Distribution. We used to send out promos to people. I think now with these new generation DJs, they they have somebody listening to the tracks that they select for their, their show. Back in the day, you had to do that, right? And yeah. that's time-consuming. That's a whole week selecting well, I still, tunes. I, I, still, I still do that, but you've just got to filter out the faff. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, yeah, yeah I'm oh. grateful that I get sent promos, you know, as much as I was when I was a, a, a starting out as a DJ. You know, someone's taking time out to send you a promo, but I can't yeah. listen to all of it. So I can yeah. filter out just by reading the first couple of words, how something is described or a label name. You know, there's some awful uh, label uh, names. It's like whatever makes you think that somebody is going to be attracted to that label. <laughs> you know, just the small details or this long epic, like, you know, kind of... Uh, um, it's like um, a bad CV, isn't it? You know, kind of uh, about about the track and the artist. It's like, we're in a 30-second attention span culture. Yeah. You've got to be there immediate. First few bars, immediate. What the visual aspect of the cover, everything is visual and 30 seconds. So you've got to grab that attention immediately. So, it's in, but, yeah. interesting you say that because you said it the early days you had all this interesting art and then you got interesting covers which you said you I, I get that it all comes together um who's the most famous person you've ever met that you were starstruck myself <laughs> yeah I'm, I'm i'm acting cool right now but I, i'm pretty starstruck daddy i'll be honest yeah well done that's a fucking great um, answer i, I, um, I met I met David Bowie at um, uh, what was that festival called? Um, Phoenix Festival in Bradford right. um, upon Avon. He came, he was playing after me. I played a techno hard house set. It was broadcast on Radio One the whole tent, and I played before David Bowie and Tim Men. But I, you know, I I I, I bet you know I just about said, said hello, and he said oh thanks for the music, and then he went on and played, and I'd finished. But my driver was out the back talking to David Bowie. I'd met George Michael. Um, I've um, met David Bowie as well at the, at the uh, Playboy Mansion, and he, he stole my line of coke, gave me his shit coke. Fucking, he owes me one, man. I'll tell you that now. <laughs> That's from a rock and roll. Um, I, I, but, I'm telling you well, now. You know, I, I don't put people on pedestals. Well, you know, we're, I, I'm egalitarian. It's like, you know, I can get on with anyone. And the thing is, it's like, we're all famous. We're all famous. We're here, we're alive, we're healthy, and we're abundant. We're all famous. 
You're a fucking legend. Who, who, in your opinion, except for you, is the most influential soul in Clubland? Influential who? soul. Yeah. Who's the one that you you would give the most praise to in in the arc of Clubland as we know it? Frankie Knuckles and Larry Levan. Wow. Okay. Nice. Both in the world of spirits now, but yeah, yeah. That's good. That's good. I think Pete Tong needs a, a, a you know a bust as well. He's done. He's done great. I met him over here, Pete, and he he also played at Blanche's after you. And he was like, you know, not drinking, doing runs and all that. Super down to down to earth kind of guy, man. Really nice. Um, do you have a favorite track now of all time? This is a tough question. I think, like, you know, kind of in terms of house, it's got to be the night writers, um, let the music use you, which is a oh, Frankie man. Yeah. Um, production. Um, yeah, that was the key track that I heard in Amnesia that still get, sends a shiver down the spine and invokes goosebumps to this day. That's because there's God in the music. You know, there's the God spirit in the music. So a piece of music that will give you goosebumps and that um, sensitivity of the skin towards a piece of music is amazing. And yeah, I, you know, off the top, top of my head, that definitely the night writers as a soul record, wake up everybody, which is very, um, appropriate for what's going on in the world today. Um, we'll get ten- to that in a minute. Absolutely. Harold Melvin and Fra- the Blue Notes. Frankie Knuckles is your favourite DJ, would you say then? After that little tribute? I, I believe that, you know, I, I think Frankie Knuckles is the D- still to this day, the DJ's DJ. Yeah. Everybody, ador- everybody adores Frankie Knuckles and without Frankie Knuckles, there wouldn't be house music. There would be house music, but Frankie Knuckles was very, very key and instrumental to the development of house music. An amazing um, talent and a beautiful um, human being. Do you, do you think that America beat us to that, the house scene then? Um, well, America formed house music through European music, through Craftwork, right. um, Depeche Mode. You know, um, the, the guys in Detroit and Chicago took that original um, Euro electronic music and fused it into with synthesizers into techno and house alongside the gospel elements and the disco elements. So, you know, I think it's been a two way street where you know, it's not one or the other, you know, America, America uh, formed the music like lots of different music genres. And we took the music and made it into a scene. America's not very, really good at making scenes. We are in Europe. <laughs> Yeah, particularly here in particularly here in Britain, you know, fashion, art, music, culture, we're rich in that heritage, and we'll always continue to be. It's it's in our genes. It's in, it's in our genetic makeup. You know, we're designed to create and and shape uh, uh, movements and scenes and and the height of creativity. Um, yeah. So thank you, America. <laughs> but now, also be- because we we shape that scene. The, the American DJs were pay, being paid a pittance in America at that time. They weren't being paid the superstar DJ fees that they are now um, at that time. And then the um, the music that I hear that broke a lot of those artists, then they started coming to Europe in the 90s and they were earning really big fees. And that, you know, that set the bar. So the American DJs are really, really grateful to the European scene 
because it continues to, you know, um, uh, you know, continues with the um, uh, desire and passion for those American DJs. That's amazing. I'm pretty good friends with Father Jack Master Funk. I'm hoping to get him on in on here next. And I got to give a shout out to Mark Farina. For me, he's one of the legends, man. That sound, that whole mushroom jazz thing, changed my life. Um, did you ever recognize a decline in the energy of clubs or a negative impact that altered your passion for DJing? Because you did step, you stepped back for a while, didn't you? You were, you yeah, were there. Well, what happened with that? Uh, well, um, uh, the departure, the sudden departure from Radio One, um, and then you find out who your friends are in this in the in the music industry, right? Uh, uh, that was one thing, and then can, you, can of, you talk about this thing with Radio One? I don't really, it... I don't really want to. It's negative. Okay, but, okay, um, okay, okay. Focus on the music. It's just folk, it happens to a lot of people, and uh, you know, it's that's just the way of the world, unfortunately. But um, the music also was bit house was becoming a bit formulated. It gone through this amazing period of songwriting, and all the amazing nineties and um, productions that are you know such classic uh, pieces of songwriting and Agreed. dance music, and then kind of into the millennium, two thousand four, I guess five. Music became quite formulated, and the the energy had shifted, and and I think there was a lot more, um, um, yeah, just uh, just standard formulized sound. And two two thousand five, probably when you got the electro yeah. scene coming in as well, like that biggie, you know, yeah, that was all Bam, right. that was Bambossa all right. and uh, all yeah. that subliminal changed, and you know, yeah, I remember yeah. that. So you yeah, you so. you announced retirement in two thousand and five. Well, I never, then... I never, no, I never used that word retirement because I'll never retire. That's what the press announced. Should have just said I'm taking a break. I would never ever use the word retire because I believe you don't ever retire, and I'll always be doing something to the day I die. You know, that's right. what I'm I'm cut out to do. That I'm not going to go. Oh, that's it! Like I'm over the hill now. I'm going to go down the allotment or something, or put my slippers on and just uh, uh, drink tea all day or something. No, I'll always be creating something and and always be active. And I think an active life um, adds to a long a long life, and that's that's what I wish for. So yeah, I took I I, I took a uh, I, I stepped down from music and I wanted to focus on some other things, and that's what I did. And I had stepped away for a couple of years. Went out with a bit of a fanfare and on reflection, I could have it could have been managed a lot differently. I should have just not like kind of like you know shouted it from the rooftops and just like disappeared for a couple of years. So it's taken me many many years to get myself back up, uh, you know, kind of to a uh, a, a level. Um, but you do you do remember you was the kid opening the window playing the vinyl outside for everybody else, right? <laughs> now. <laughs> Uh, I've I've yeah. experienced that as a DJ. I've experienced the same thing. I was top of the guy, you know, top guy at Venus in Manchester. Something happened, um, and I couldn't show my face in Manchester. And that, one of the reasons I left England, I was fucking ashamed. And I actually contacted all the DJs and all the people that I thought were against me. And turns out they don't remember. So anybody who's listening, if you got a fucking problem, deal with it directly immediately. You'll find yeah. out. It's it's just paranoia. A lot of it now. You then published a book about DJing in 2008, like a, an actual book. Please tell us about that. That's right, yeah. Long, long before all the DJ tutorial uh, books came along, 
um, um, everything you need to know about DJing and success. Um, that started out as a ebook before ebooks were ebooks were the preserve of the American market. We went to an internet marketing seminar with a chap called David Kavanagh, who teaches internet marketing to this day in um, Pattaya, Thailand. He was speaking in London and gave us the inspiration, myself, Ben Brophy and Jerry Frempong, who are very close friends, to write a book about DJing. And that's what we did. And that ebook um, sold thousands of copies. And then a publishing agent um, in London uh, said this should be a hardcover book and that's what happened so it's more of a technical reference manual um the dj book uh and uh yeah so yeah very proud that i i'm a published author and um there's more to so come another epic trait to your legacy um how does it work now with royalties from like all dj mixes you know like I used to love the Fantasia thing. I don't think you were ever on Fantasia, were you? No. 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 But how no. does that work now? Like, there's no CD sales, I guess. But what happens no, with there, that kind there of There isn't. I don't really see any um, royalties from that anymore. Right. But, yeah, it was a boom. The 90s was a boom time for sales of music. So, yeah, royalties come from um, publishing and um, radio play and live events. So, um that's where the source of income income uh, comes from uh, from producing music. Um, now, the I'm core source of income, should I say? I I met you um, in 2012 officially. I've I've saw you many many times, DJ in England, so many times. Um, off my tits, <laughs> just had, and I had a great experience. You're a fucking legend, great DJ. Always brought the energy, the vibration. Um, I met you 2012 in Saigon. There was such a big hype. I want to give a shout out to Andres, Mr. Sen, uh, Kaiser, all the guys involved with that night. You have no idea. The the Basically, we, we talked about this before, but what happened here, we had this club called Blanche's, which I was a resident for for five years. Um, you know, I, I love Andres, but Andres, he tried to get DJs so big and paid so much money that it basically killed the venue. It's a little bit like the Hacienda, the, the Hacienda legacy. Um, what Sorry did you think? Hear. No, no, it's fine because times move on. There, there's there's underground clubs here in Saigon now, but it's not that wave of house that we had. You know, we had we had you, we had Bob Sinclair, uh, Grandmaster Flash, Random Block. Um, mm. Oh God, it, it was just for me. It was like Andres. Me and Andres were on the same wavelength. Um, but what what did you make of Asia overall? Like playing your style. 2013, you came here with your wife, so it was rampling and rampling. But yeah. what did you make of that whole experience? Like playing that music in Asia, did it resonate? Well, I'd already been playing in Asia since the nineties: Hong Kong, China, Japan, um, Thailand. Uh, Bali. So um, coming to Vietnam for the first time was thrilling. Yeah. And Cambodia, um, two places where I hadn't played in Asia. So it was really exciting and thrilling. And I, you know, blessed to uh, have been one of the early um, uh, kind of profile DJs coming into um, Vietnam to play. So, yeah, I have fond memories. And thank you, Andreas, for, you know, um, hosting all those events and um, uh, wonderful 
Uh, you know, one night uh, you was playing on that night with Grandmaster Flash, and old Mister Flash got he got very very uptight. He wanted his own separate DJ booth, which he got his own equipment. We were playing on some other equipment. He came in like you know, kind of last minute. He was you know he had had his sound check, and um, and uh, he was like very very particular about smoking in the club, and um, and everything, and uh, and he's. Um, console, uh, he was playing off Tractor, I believe. And I he remember this. <laughs> he had a bit of a sound issue on Mr. Flash. Oh, my gosh. And uh, he didn't, I'm afraid to say, with the greatest respect, but he didn't handle that and manage it very well. What he could have done is got on the mic and just started, like, rapping a bit and, like, vibing up the crowd and just not kind of, like, getting stressed over the sound issue. But he decided to blame everybody who was in his... Uh, vicinity and I was one of those people and he said to me you know you touch my sound and I'm like no 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 flash I haven't I haven't been near your sound I've been playing here man buddy and he was I just can't like, believe you remember he that off. he was letting off his stress on everyone around him and I was quite surprised by that but uh, it all turned out okay but um yeah yeah he had a bit of a, and that was you know the early days of tractor as well and tractor at that time it was prone to problems it was just oh. like set up on tractor and there'd always be some bloody glitch and that's what happened to old mr flash yeah i actually i played with dj <laughs> do you remember Rex. that i played i played i do i played i played with yoda <laughs> DJ Yoda at Hard Rock Cafe, and he was playing Serato, and it was like, yo, I used to remember you like DMC shit, and it was just yeah. terrible. The sound was horrible. That's yeah. hilarious. Now, um, you have been. This is where we're going to go a little bit sideline now. You, you have now been a major spokesperson in the UK about certain policies over the last few years. I, for one, I am a massive, um, yes, supporter of this. It's uh, it's it's kind of hard to talk about this from Vietnam, um. But I will tell you this now: I hundred percent back you, and I think um, for those that don't know, you've been doing massive protests in in uh, London. Um, a lot of people are still on you know neutral side, but please, can you just elaborate? You're you're a freedom fighter, basically. I seen what you've been doing with Matt Letizia, who's a fucking legend, by the way. <laughs> um, what's going on? What What's going on, Danny? Next week, yeah. I just, I just want to say, what's going on? This is the greatest deception in all human history. That's what's yes, going on. I so agree. Um, we're here at this time, um, and it's calling. Um, we stand in the, the truth movement, um, the freedom movement, and we have followed our intuition, and our souls tell us that something is wrong, and. I was taught by my grandfather, who was a Second World War veteran, to stand up to wrongdoing. And that's what I do alongside everybody else who's part of the freedom movement. This is a grand deception. And yep. the truth the truth is unstoppable. And the truth is being revealed day by day. And now this thing, hold on, hold on. This whole thing is going to come crashing down and the truth will be exposed. There are crimes against humanity that are, are, are being um, carried out here. And this is what's this is this this is this is what's being exposed. This is what we've been fighting for the last four years. They stole two years of our lives. They closed everything down. 
in hospitality and um, the associated industries. We didn't have a we didn't have furlough. We didn't have a right to work. So um, under this guise of um, the uh, circumstances of the time. So uh, two years of income lost and our time and uh, uh, lockdowns. Not that not that we complied to that nonsense anyway. We just went to went about our daily lives to the best that we could. But it, it, it's it, it's a con. It, it's it's a grand deception. I'm 100 and... percent with you on this, but I want to know how have you figured this out? How? Because I figured it out as well. Yeah. Right. But how did you figure it out? What was the what was the thing that was like, right, enough's enough and done? Intuitively. Intuitively. Yes. And seeing through lies. Um I'd had a, a situation um with um uh, a, 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 some fraudulent dealings with a bank on a corp on a commercial loan, um, which uh, um culminated in 2017 with uh, a very um, unpleasant and um, difficult outcome. Um, so I was aware of the corruption in, in, in um, the world of finance and politics and everything else. And I think just after two weeks to flatten the curve and then it went on, it was like something's not right here. Initially, went along with it, just thought, right, well, it's two weeks, so we'll just, you know, we'll... We'll, we'll, you know, we'll comply with this. It's, you know, uh, you know, and then as time moved on, it became more apparent that, you know, this is, this isn't right. This is a deception. Um, and this really is a war upon humanity. I agree. And I We're, wish I could be there. I wish I could be there to support you, to be honest. But it doesn't um, matter. It, it doesn't matter where you are. This is, this is, this is international. This is all around the world. Yes. This is this is a war driven by the cabal and has gone on. This is this has gone on for centuries, and yeah. this whole system, this win lose system, and this scarcity mindset, and the corporate wealth transference and globalism. You know, this is a globalist agenda um, that is fueled by the Club of Rome, the bloodline yeah. families. You know it. Uh, this is this is <laughs> this is about the enslavement of humanity that may sound far-fetched to some people and all this talk about conspiracy theories conspiracy theories as they're termed in some sections of the press and society every conspiracy theory that has been had fingers pointed at at uh, a particular issue it's all come true so there are no conspiracy theories it's the truth and nothing yes. but the truth my, and this my... is more apparent by the day my philosophy is uh, the biggest conspiracy is why you still think it's a conspiracy. That's my own. Um, now, you know about the Rothschilds, right? I want to give you a little uh, something I've just learned. The Rothschilds, there was, um, there was an ancient uh, uh, land before Egypt called the Kemet. And the, the builder of Kem, Kemet, was Ammon. His name was Amun-Ra. And Amun Ra was the original uh, mason of the pyramids and stuff like that. And uh, Amun Ra was taken out by uh, by the dark side. They call them the elite now, the elite bloodline. And before he was taken out, this is why we call. That's why everybody says Amun, right? Amen, Amun Ra. He was the sun disc, and um, Ra is the red disc, the red shield. So Amun Ra which you see depicted on the top of Egyptian hieroglyphics, um, he before he gave up his 
his empire, his kingdom, he tried to protect it with a shield and his name became Ra Kam. And over time, Ra Kam became the Ra child, the Ra shield, the Roth's child. Those He's guys have been, story. those guys have been going since the beginning of time. And this mm. is the 13 lines of the, the 13 lines of the bloodline of the Illuminati still mm. running the world. The most important thing that everybody needs to get onto now is this 2030 or 20, uh, 2021 agenda. Agenda uh, 13. Ag agenda, agenda 13, which is now yeah. Agenda 2030. It's where they basically... It's going to fail. It's going to fail. Good. We're not, we're not going to accept a central bank digital currency where there's no more cash. Cash rights freedom. Remember that. This convenience culture of paying with watches, phones, uh, rings, whatever it may be. Um, this convenience culture is walking us into enslavement. Yeah. Um, so if if um, electronic systems go down, how are we? How are people going to pay for things? Yeah. Essential digital currency is about control. Digital identity is they're all interlinked, and the social credit system, um, which is part of this, also. So with, without the digital identity, these these other associated linked um, plans fail. They don't work. So we've got to we've got to oppose digital identity. People think, well, it's okay, and we've got to move with the times. No, uh, biometric data databases and facial recognition. This these are really it's really sinister and dark. And this isn't about catching criminals. This is about control. It's an agenda of control. All of it. Um, Agenda 30 um, is their vision for this uh, totalitarian world. Yeah, and we don't share, we don't share that vision. And we are the pathfinders towards the new world, the new world of, of abundance, where there is abundance for all and not just the few. They've held they've held this for, for centuries. And, you know, this is coming to a head and Agenda 30 is going to collapse and the globalist agenda will fail. And anybody who is supporting the globalist agenda and is complicit in the globalist agenda, they will face justice. That's amazing. You've been doing these these massive uh, protests in, in London, right? I've been How's part of I haven't been organising them, no, and I like I like to call them demonstrations. demonstrations. We're not asking for people's permission. Protesting is asking for permission. Please hear what we've got to say. No, we are demonstrating. We're demonstrating our numbers, our opposition, who we are towards this agenda. Yeah, I I I got to give you massive respect because, as I just laid out in this podcast, the legend, the legacy that you have to put all of that on the line for this, which you have done and you still, you're still smiling and you're still eradicating this good energy. That's perfect, mate. I think you're raise the vibration. Yeah. Do not, do not get sucked into the fear matrix. The, 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 this is a, a, an agenda driven by fear. It's yeah. no, no different to the school bully. I'm going to do this to you. I'm going to do that. These people are psychopaths, narcissists, yes, sociopaths. They do not hold the power. We hold the power, the people, individual power in each and every human being. We hold much power. And this is the shift in consciousness where, where we are in. 
we are recognizing our own individual and collective power. These people are going to become that I don't even term some of them as people. They are entities. They are going to become obsolete and will be abolished. These organizations based in Geneva, the World Health Organization, the World yeah, Economic Forum, yeah. and the UN are all interlinked with Agenda 30, which ultimately is a control agenda. Yeah. And we are, deemed, we are deemed as QR cattle, nothing yeah. more, nothing less. Now, talking about this, what changes would you like to see happen in the future for for everybody? As I just said, uh, these organisations being um, dismantled and abolished, um, uh, uh, new uh, council for uh, world health, a genuine authentic council, um, the whole political system deconstructed and political reform, more community um, politics where there isn't this like opposing factors of blue and red or yellow and green, whatever the colours may be, where politics is is that that's an old um uh, old paradigm um political system that this is this is where everything is heading in my opinion and this political system is is on its last last legs you know they there are unelected bureaucrats and technocrats this is a globalist coup d'etat across the world and every nation well nearly every nation is being embroiled in this and having these restrictions imposed upon uh, people. We do no harm. We live our lives responsibly and we uh, hold individual power. And that is where we need to focus on and move forward and live the life of our choosing and our dreams. And don't give up on your dreams. Do not get sucked into fear. Oh my God, this is going to happen. That's going to happen. No, the future hasn't happened yet. Be present to the present, as Eckhart Tolle uh, states. And that that's always something to bear in mind because we project into the future too much and outcomes. Be right in the present and be grateful for the present because the present is all we have. The past is done and the future hasn't happened. I lost a lot of friends here because I was very outspoken in Vietnam. Um, I forgot the fact that I'm living in a communist country. I was just like, yeah, this is all bullshit. But I lost a lot of friends, Danny. And um, slowly, slowly, they've all started trickling back now. They've all started. I had to pick myself up. Imagine falling down and there's no uh, net to catch you. And I just kept falling and falling. Like, where's my fucking mates? And now yeah. everything I said, they don't all agree. But yeah. you're on my podcast right now. One of my original OG legends. Talking sense. It gives me ultimate calmness. I, I feel Sorry. like, yes, I never straight away from my spiritual self. So that's fucking incredible. Thank you for that. Thank and you well for standing done. up. Well, well done. And well done for standing. Your, this is about standing in your truth, authenticity, and standing up to wrongdoing. And many, and it's a divisive agenda. It's a very elaborate yet simple divisive agenda to part yeah. us. Yeah, and the, this is oh. going on in wars around the world. It's dividing humanity. However, there is a, a rise in collective consciousness, and this is the great awakening of humanity. They're trying to impose the not-so-great reset, collapsing the financial system, so yeah. we'll own nothing and be happy. That's their tagline, the World Economic Forum. Yeah, They are going to be the ones who are going to own nothing and be very unhappy. Yeah, uh, yeah. 
That's the outcome. Hold that intention. They are not going to triumph. Evil is not going to diminish the light. And we are the bearers of light around the world. It's yeah. our world, not theirs. Our world. 100%. Just give, just to give the listeners an example, like foot, I'm a Manchester City fan, right? But football divides people. The fact that, you remember when Saka and all them, they didn't score the penalties at, the, at that tournament in the final, and it caused all that hatred with racism. You need to understand that that's controlled. That's yeah. not just a fucking... That's, that doesn't happen by accident. This shit makes people angry. Makes the hate wars. You got to step back, be calm, and listen to your own intuition. You know what I'm saying? Now, yeah, well, just be this is the bread and circuses that George Orwell spoke about, and a lot of George Orwell's 1984. We're actually living in 1984 right now, yeah. and um, there's no denying that. There's a wave of cognitive dissonance. My life is quite normal. Everything is perfectly normal. But actually, it's not. It's not. Just like, you know, kind of look behind the curtain. The curtain is not even closed. It's overtly open right now. Um, right. And at some point, but I, th I do feel, as you back to what you just said, a lot more people, because consciousness is, you know, um, on all different frequencies. And, uh, you know, some, some are uh, uh, at this point, some are more advanced with consciousness and some are behind. And this is the great awakening. So people are catching up and more and more people every day are questioning this agenda. They're questioning, and we're going to hit a critical mass of awakening mm -hmm. and it's very exciting we're heading into we are at the threshold of the aquarian age this is where we are at and this is the time age of, of aquarius great, great <laughs> revolution and change now and, um the, 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 you know people like matt latissere they, they were silenced how how have you felt you know what's what's happened to you talking about this stuff have you been silenced have you been shadow shadow banned on facebook what's happened to sure. you with this yeah, yeah. I, I permanently banned from Twitter. I wouldn't go back there if you paid me. Um, you know, it's a toxic cesspit. I wouldn't go back there. Um, um, shadow banned on Instagram for two years. Facebook, I stepped away from. Um, I don't really use that. Um, I, I'm more based on Instagram. People get a warning if they want to follow my account. This account has repeatedly violated community standards. Yeah, I, saw, I saw I saw the picture. <laughs> I do not share anything. That, I do not share anything that is fear based. I share authenticated information. I fucking respect I, that. I, I do not share conspiracy theories and I do not share anything that I is going that. to harm people or put them in fear. Um, so yeah, I, independent media, uh, you know, my source, all of our sources come from independent, independent media and, um, thank heavens for the internet. This is one of the good things about the internet is the, is the flow of information and the speed of information and the truth and the truth is rising. So it's our duty to stand up and stand in our truth and speak the truth. It's a duty and it's a duty to my son and the future generations of this world. And mm. I don't want my son uh, um, living in a totalitarian world and, you know, him and his uh, children saying, what did you do to stop yeah. this? Um, you know, I, I, it's a calling. It's a calling. And there are warriors across. There's millions of us across the world. Millions. In fact, there, there's probably there's probably a billion of us uh, uh, now at this point. 
that are I'm on the white s- aware. I'm on the same page, 100. percent Um, just want to give a shout out to your son, the new junior rambling. I saw him DJing recently. Um, the next prodigy. Yes, I DJed um um with my son um in January in London. It was yeah. him. It was his second DJ set. He was doing a back to back with um Danny Newman son yep. who Danny Newman is um uh he was uh, uh the, the owner's son from Turn Mills in London uh yeah. he's the leading promoter um so they were doing a back to back so I played after Tall Paul the DJ Tall Paul's son Joe and I was sandwiched in, in between the Newmans and, is, is um, he called Short Paul <laughs> he's not well he's He's getting as tall as his dad, and he's very, very <laughs> much like Paul. his dad. And he also plays like his dad as well. He's got the same energy. Oh, but I would, yeah, it, was, it, was, it was a historic night and such a hearty experience um, playing um, before my son and his mate and all of their student mates were there, and the energy was great. You know, that 20-something energy that I still hold when I get in um, and plug my headphones in and start playing a set. I'm jumping around. I'm having a good dance and, yeah, letting off some energy. So you still was... dancing around the decks. I love that, Daddy. I love it. Yeah, yeah, was... yeah exactly. Exactly. It was a memorable night, a memorable night of um, historic for all of the family. While we're talking about sons, it's um, Graham Park's 40th anniversary this weekend, and uh, oh, we wow. should give a shout out to his son that that's gone to the uh, the the other side. Love you, Graham Park. Um, bless you, Graham. And bless congratulations you. on uh, full, your fortieth anniversary. Yeah, I we got love to play. Hockey. I, he was the first person I ever saw at the Hacienda, and I'm I'm going to get him on now that you you don't re- you probably do realize this, but. Even Wayne Anthony said this. You get Danny Ramblin' on your podcast, the world's your oyster. Um, you, <laughs> you are that guy. Um, just before we wrap this up, what an amazing conversation. Um, what tips would you give to young guns that are starting out on this kind of crazy journey, man? What tips? Yeah, you've just got to follow your passion and network and hustle and, um, and stay committed to um, your, you know, your dream. Um, you can't do it in half measures and you're going to face, going to face setbacks, knockbacks. You know, the door, the door just doesn't open for everyone to walk in. You know, it can take years, but you have to be committed. As I said earlier, you know, so many people give up, you know, when they're actually close to a point of having breakthroughs, but it, 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 it's a process and you just got to keep going. Um, some people get lucky breaks, you know, they might make a track or something or they'll meet someone and that's life. But I think, you know, it's about commitment, passion and drive and motivation and belief. Yeah. And it's holding, holding that belief that, yeah, I want to do this. And if you stick to all of those things, then you'll, you'll, you'll fulfill your dreams and ambitions, whatever that may be, whatever well, that may be. About twenty five years about twenty five years ago, I just wanted to get in the DJ box with you and pinch your ass. And now you're on my <laughs> podcast. So that is hundred percent right. Um listen, I know you're a busy man and you've been sick. I want to wish you uh Chuck Mundamoy, as we say in Vietnam, it's a happy lunar new year. I'm following you. I've followed you forever. 
you're a gentleman. Um, my father, my mother, they passed away. I feel some wisdom in you that my father is, is channeling. I think what you're doing is very, very strong, very, very brave, Danny. Um, I can't believe you came on my podcast. So many people, they, they, they won't believe this. I, and, and for me to keep this a secret has been the hardest thing in my life because I'm just like you. I'm a broadcaster. I'm the guy blasting the speaker out of the window for everybody to listen. And tonight, everyone's going to listen to you on my podcast. Danny Ramblin, what a fucking legend, my friend. Thank you. Thank you, Adam, for um, having me on. Uh, it's been a pleasure talking to you. A living legend, my I add, buddy. You are. <laughs> and I, I oh, hopefully I'll come, back, I'll come back and play in Vietnam at some point. Oh, 100%. 100%. Um, seriously, I cannot thank you enough. Um, congratulations to become who you are and what you're doing. I follow you and, and I say it doesn't matter what, what people, where they're divided. It's just about being yourself and having that power to be honest. And I think tonight you've been as honest as you can be. This is a crazy ass. You're going to change my life, brother. Thank you very much. Good night. Okay. Aho. <laughs> it's Danny Ramblin. Good night, listeners. I'll see you soon. Thanks, Danny. Good night. <laughs>